Hello, I hope you're doing okay. Thank you for tuning in to Back to Life. My name's Millie and I'm a DJ, broadcaster and trainee therapist. And I started Back to Life to explore the link between healing and creativity. This season is really focused on shining a light on mental health and addiction within the world of electronic music. I'm sure that you feel it too, but the mental health crisis feels really heavy at the moment. Lots of people are really, really struggling and I'm someone who struggled for a long time, uh, for many years, but I've been fortunate enough to find a way out. And so in this podcast, I'm really hoping to make the recovery process seem more accessible and appealing to demystify and destigmatize it, whatever it is that you're recovering from and however you choose to do it. I've had some really fantastic guests so far and loads more to come. Thank you so much for all the love that's poured in for DJ Wingold, Nightwave, Louisa and Sarah Kin. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please, 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 please do leave a review. Follow the pod on whatever platform you listen to, Apple or Spotify being big too, uh, and do share it with your friends. Today's guest is an absolute legend. If you were clubbing or festivaling in the noughties, you will have danced and maybe cried and probably hugged a stranger to his incredibly iconic, uber emotional dance floor anthem love story. That song actually celebrates its 20-year anniversary this week. My guest today is Bushwhacker, best known as one half of Leo and Bushwhacker, and now a qualified psychotherapist, the founder of Listen Up Therapy, and he's still an international DJ producer, and he's a recovering addict. He's been clean now for over seven years and he shares his experience of recovery from addiction and mental health very candidly and helps a lot of people in the process. I was so honoured and excited to speak to him. Aside from the small fact of being an international world famous DJ, our experience of recovery shares lots and lots of similarities. He's got a really, really powerful and important message to share. We started at the very beginning with the life-changing experience of his first rave. For the first time I went to, to an acid house party, everything changed forever. You know, I was, I was working, it was the year I'd left school, I was 16, I was working in a disco hire shop in Kentish Town and these guys kept coming in to hire smoke machines and lights and projectors and they kept inviting me to these these warehouse parties and I, I didn't even know what a warehouse party was and one day I decided to go it was it was like August 1988 and um, rocked up to this uh, empty swimming pool on uh, Merlin Street in North London and there were a queue of people all standing in silence there was security with dogs and people were going in through this door and walked in through this door and paid five pounds walked through another door and went down a ladder into this empty swimming pool and that's where life changed forever i had a a life-changing experience the music the the atmosphere and everybody hugging each other everybody smiling everybody i i didn't understand what was happening i just knew that it was it was mecca it was it was the the holy land it was something something incredible my experience of going out up until then had been sort of going to a a disco, getting drunk on the bus with a bottle of Thunderbird wine and standing around the edges and trying not to get into a fight. 
there was no unity and peace and love and trance dancing. It was something much less uh, euphoric. It was a total overnight game changer. I came home at 11 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning and my mum went crazy. You know, she's like, where have you been? What's going on? And, and you know, I, I'm not sure whether I even tried to explain, but I just knew that this was it. This was all that mattered. And so you went on to become a professional producer, DJ, and, and have a huge amount of success with your music and have written songs that are incredibly anthemic, uh, you know, like I'm thinking of, of Love Story, of course. It's so emotive and it, it takes you back to a certain time. I'd love to hear, you know, how you went from that first rave and falling in love with it in such a big way to, you know, your career and, and how that expanded. I, first and foremost, was a devotee. I was going every week. I helped out. I'd hand out flyers on the corner of street on street corners or tell people where the, the secret meeting point was i would stay till the end and help to unpack the the, the cables and the carry the speakers um, in and out of these these warehouses and then they started asking me if i would uh, operate the smoke machine that was my my next job in in these these warehouse parties and then one day um the the DJ who was supposed to play when the when the party started had to either go and talk to the police or go and do something. And he said, Matthew, get on the decks. You know, you know, here's my headphones. And suddenly I was on the decks. I was, you know, 16 just and I was shaking. I was petrified. And you know, I tried to mix two records together and you know, it, it, I, I can't remember how it went, but that was that was my entry. But point being, it was, you know, you work hard to get the privilege of being even asked to play and so a few weeks later they said oh do you want to do you want to play some records bring some records down and you know and a few months later they chucked me 20 quid and then the next week they gave me 100 quid and then suddenly I was like oh I'm getting paid to play records this is wow what's happening here and then you know I started to get booked to do more and more things it was incredible and then um, mid to late 90s I, I went and did a a course, a sound engineering course, and uh, when I finished that course, I got offered a job as an assistant, uh, an engineer assistant job in a studio, which is also a kind of a holy grail job. And that's where I met Leo. So I met Leo in the studio one day. I got booked to to engineer for him and one of his friends, and we we just hit it off as two personalities. There was something, there was something there. I think so. Very shortly after us meeting in, in that context, we, we decided to work on, a, on some music together as the usual suspects. And then Leo Bushwacker was born shortly after that. What was that time like for you? Because I think for many musicians, that would be like the dream. You know, the dream to have that kind of prominence and, and, yeah. to, and to write a song that resonates with so many people. I guess you could call it a happy accident in, in many ways. Uh, Leo didn't even want to put it out because it didn't sound like anything else. And because... It didn't really sound like anything else. We, we weren't really sure where it fitted in. So when we first released it, we, we pressed a thousand copies on a black label and we just called it Untitled. It didn't even have a name. And it, and we put it out there and then pressed another thousand. And it, it got out there. And the distributors at the time, they, they did what they do. They sold records to different territories and what have you. And when we turned up in South America, because we were doing gigs over in South America, in Argentina... They did come up with their own name for it. They called it Love Song. It was incredible having this this piece of music that was giving 
so many people so much joy at the same time and it you know it didn't just come and go it seemed to, to kind of carry on for a long time and yeah I mean it was you're asking what did it feel like and it being the dream it, you know yeah I guess it was the dream but it you know in, in many ways we were just rolling with it at the time we just kind of went with it and we were continuously working on other music and albums and it was a huge uh, period of time in our lives and you know unforgettable when did you first start to notice that there was you know a problem with your relationship with substances and your mental health because so far it sounds like everything was going pretty well you know certainly in terms of like your career and your music and your artistry you know everything was going great you know when did that start to kind of raise alarm bells for you probably christmas 1988 you know, that might sound like a lot earlier than uh, you would expect me to say, but I'd only been partying in that way, if you like, for, for you know, a few months, six months or whatever. But um, I just started thinking to myself, oh, maybe I need to have a break really early on. And mm. there would be so many years um, that I'd get to the end of the year and it was always about, New Year's Eve and then January the 1st being a new year and a fresh start and making New Year's resolutions and I'd always, always say, right, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to, well, I, I didn't really drink back in those days, so that, that's not entirely true, but I'm not going to take any more pills or I'm not going to do those things that I'm doing. I'm gonna, you know, sometimes that break lasted a couple of weeks and sometimes it lasted a few months, but I'd noticed that the come downs were harsh and that, um, well, I was, you know, progressively probably doing more and, and, you know, it didn't, it didn't feel great, you know? Um, mm. So there was always an underlying kind of sense of, oh, you know, maybe this is too much in some ways. And, and you know, there were, there was uh, consequences, but uh, I didn't really address, address it until about 2005. I was, I was in a relationship and um, my, my partner at the time had said, I think you've got a problem and, we can't stay together unless you do something about it. And so that's when, when I started to seriously consider maybe things were, were a problem. Yeah, I mean, I definitely relate to that. I feel like for me, it was like kind of from the word go, it was problematic. Or there was like a very, very short-lived time where I was like, this things are great, you know, in terms of like partying or... Um, and then very quickly it sort of went quite downhill. I guess because you were kind of enjoying this you know, the success and, and doing really well with your music. And I guess it would have been maybe made it harder to kind of see it yourself. Being a functioning addict as, a, as an international DJ back, back in those days was actually pretty easy. I could rock up to work absolutely wasted. And I believed, and, you know, at some level, I think there was a grain of truth in it. I believe that that's what was expected in some ways. It was it was the party, and for me to be the party person in that way, um, that's what I did. And I also, you know, didn't have to pay for things a lot of the time. People just supplied them. There was always drink. Every time we went and DJed somewhere, there was drink in the DJ booth. Uh, people always wanted us to go to after parties. You know, it was very, very challenging. And so your partner at the time said, you know, you need to get help. Did you feel that you wanted to get help at that time or was it more the pressure from them? I think the first time round that I tried to do something serious about it, I, 
I was doing it to save the relationship and I hadn't, I hadn't grasped the concept that I need to be doing it for myself. Um, so, so yeah, but it, you know, it did get me through the door and uh, start seeking help, which was obviously a very important thing to do. And where did you where did you first reach out for help? What was that experience like? I called a helpline from a twelve step program uh, that was uh, suggested to me and asked them what to do. And they 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 signposted me to a newcomers meeting in Chelsea, and and that's where I had my first experience of of twelve uh, step recovery. I went to the meeting very very frightened, but it was a profound experience, and I I did hear uh, people share in ways that I could very much relate to and, and I had a sense that I wasn't alone and that perhaps there was something going on here that, that could be you know very very beneficial and the second meeting that I went to um, I met I met somebody in that meeting that told me that they could show me a way that I would never have to you know drink or use substances again and that person became my sponsor I got a sponsor and, and started working with them to go through the, the, the 12 steps and how how was that experience? Daunting and um, fascinating, but yeah, it was scary as well. Um, the idea that I was going through this process that could could change me and my life up until that point had been, you know, fun of course, but fun with consequences. And and you know, I was uh, getting a taste of. A new way of living, which I hadn't experienced since I'd left school. And so you would have still been doing gigs and and going out and stuff and and doing all that sober for the first time. How was that? Yeah, it was it was good. I mean, you know, there were very challenging times um, within that, but it was also, you know, it was also great that you know I was able to start to get a bit of clarity and you know start to get my feet back on the ground again. It was yeah, it was good, and it still is. And so did you did you kind of stay clean from that time or was there a process of I was in and out I was in and out over many years up until 2015 if I count the amount of clean time that I had I think within an 8 year period I about 5 5 to 6 years of that time in terms of days clean I very much relate to that experience um I was in and out for a lot of years as well where was the block for you do you think in being able to stay clean essentially you know I've, I've certainly got my theories on why I couldn't but I'm sure they'll be different for you I think that I hadn't known what you know life could be like outside of the world that I already lived in for so long and you know that was you know 16 year old wide-eyed skinny schoolboy that jumped jumped into an empty swimming pool uh that partied really hard for 20 years that you know, suddenly was was given this this choice of of a new life, which on the surface seemed great, but at the same time the old life was still there, and there were still people knocking on the door saying, "Let's go to the after party, and you want some of this, and have some of that," and and you know it was also quite isolating and lonely. I mean, I was on the road a lot, travelling around the world, and so the block for me it wasn't that there was there was a block in getting some clean time but you know staying that way while still immersed in that old life was was incredibly challenging 
I think it's also worth saying that that's one of the biggest hallmarks of addiction. Something that didn't occur to me when I was in that cycle was actually this is because I'm an addict. It wasn't something I was consciously choosing to kind of return to. I just hadn't had the experience I needed to in order to sort of move out of it. And for me, that was because I'd never actually worked through the steps and and done that whole thing. And, And until I did, I was stuck in that kind of relapse cycle it can be so incredibly heartbreaking for people around you and also for you the person who seems to be getting better and then going back and it's a very brutal and painful process it it is uh, one of the things that i did struggle with quite a lot over those first several years was knowing or or, you know 90 95 percent of the time maybe more the other people that I was, you know, that, that I met, that I worked with in the meetings or that went to the meetings were categoric that they could not go to the places that I go to. You know, they were like, mm. there's no way I could go in there if I'm staying clean and sober. And I was still in them. And I, I you know, that was, I was, I, I was, I never had enough of a break from it all to be out of that, out of that um, cycle long enough for me to, to start to see a different way of life that would fulfill me in in where I wanted to get to, really. Mm. I actually had someone say to me recently, you know, that they can't even listen to electronic music anymore or music they associate with raving because the euphoric recall and um, they definitely couldn't go to those places. It's funny because I remember I would literally put on mixtapes just to get me through the detox. For me, it was like medicine. I just, I couldn't imagine living without that stuff. But um, but yeah, for a lot of people, it's so kind of triggering and the association is so, so close. Was it ever a consideration for you to give up music, essentially? I, I considered it many times. Not giving up music, but giving up DJing and, and performing. You know, it was a consideration um, at times. You know, uh, you know, but but luckily, um, you know, I've learned a lot, and you know where I'm at today, I don't feel the need to do that at all. How do you think kind of the cycle was broken? That cycle of relapse. How was it that you moved out of that? Two things. I think leading into, I took took six weeks out in 2015 in the summer, and actually went to rehab in in Thailand, and and I'd, I'd never gone that route before. Leading up to that that moment in 2015, I, it was such a lonely place. It was very isolating. It was it was dark. You know, it was it was dark and lonely, and I was feeling you know very very you know very low. But being in an environment where I I you know literally word for word felt like I was being rehabilitated was a game changer. And you know, I was doing one to one counselling, group counselling, CBT yoga nidra meditation um you know learning about uh breathing techniques i was you know i often laugh about this but pool volleyball with a bunch of addicts in thailand was was a game changer for me i was really rubbish at it but it didn't matter i was with people connecting mentally physically laughing being with others and you know before that you know my using had just taken me into a place where I sat at home with the door locked and the curtains drawn. And what really changed for me was um, the curiosity about challenging my core beliefs and, 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 and learning about, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and what it means and getting more and more curious about why we are the way we are, what makes us do the things we do or think, feel and behave the way we think, feel and behave. And that's never left me. And that's what, what took me into training to be a psychotherapist. But, um, 
that was a game changer that and the meditation um the combination of all these healthy and holistic and spiritual and and, and therapeutic uh interventions you know they gave me that chance but but for me and not everyone's journey is the same everyone's got their unique story and background and history and upbringing and occupation but for me six weeks away from stimulus away from any temptation away from the parties away from working djing music all of it gave me enough of a chance to see that life could exist outside of that world yeah and it sounds like it's also you kind of actually surrendering and saying yes i need to really put this first and give this kind of my everything um and i definitely relate to that as well like i i think a lot of my struggle was i was so scared of losing things you know, I was so scared of losing my job or losing my friends or losing, you know, I kept trying to keep everything. And and the more I did that, the more I just couldn't actually break free of, of the kind of destructive patterns that I was in. And it was actually when I kind of paradoxically kind of went, OK, I'm going to let go of everything and just put this first. And then I kind of had that chance. And I love that you talk about that kind of sparking, you know, that this interest that you've then pursued and and learn and retrained and yeah I'd love to hear a bit more about your path into psychotherapy and and all the training that you've been doing um and kind of what you've learned through that process I've learned a lot I'm still learning a lot it never ends but you know I, I was already in therapy as I mentioned for, for years before before 2015 and then at the beginning of 2017 well I, I decided to take a year off social media so I made a, a pact that I was going to, from the 1st of January 2017, I was going to take 365 days off Facebook. And, okay, I did look at Instagram once or twice, but I chose to journal instead. And, and I was journaled every single day uh, for the whole year. And in the middle of January, one of my journal entries was um, was that I'd had a random thought that I, I might train as a, uh, take a degree in psychology. And... Um, so I started investigating all these online degrees with the Open University and I'd signed up to do this psychology degree and I kept looking at all these other courses and then I'd kind of get to the the, the pay button and then think, well, I'm not sure if this is the one. And the more I looked at it, the more I realised that I wasn't really sure if this was what I was looking for. And it was so broad that eventually I concluded that a psychology degree would just lead me to need to do another degree in something else to for it to be a vocation and then i got told about the the psychotherapy master's degree um in an institute called metanoia in london uh through a colleague of mine and i signed up to do their their ta 101 weekend and by the lunchtime of day one of the weekend i'm like wow this is this this is where i need to be this is what i need to do this is this is amazing. This is so interesting. This is fascinating. And the lady who's the head of the department who was facilitating the workshop had explained to us that there were two degrees. There was a, an undergrad and there was the, the postgrad. And um, I realised that, I, well, I shared in my in our outros, our goodbyes, that I, I was really excited about it all, but feeling quite sad because I realised that I couldn't. I wasn't eligible to do the the master's degree because I I had no qualifications, and she said, actually, considering your life experience, I think you're more than qualified to be allowed to do this course. So what she was basically saying was that, you know, thirty years of of of, of getting smashed and recovering and doing something about it was really important life experience 
to be able to tap into when it comes to um, when it comes to working with others and, and, and helping others in, in that in that environment. And you know, I often joke with my friends that they, you know that, uh, that uh, you know getting smashed is now recognised as a national qualification. You know, it, was, <laughs> it, it was what allowed me in. So talk me through Listen Up Therapy, which is your practice that you've founded that is specifically for people working in music and and kind of what the need was that you identified. I mean, you've obviously spoken about it with your your kind of your life's experience. Just rewinding to to pre-lockdown, pre-COVID, I had the idea, the concept of of starting a company for creative industries, so music primarily, but also media, film, TV, industries with uh, where people work unsociable hours and are not always at home so what i'd found in my experience as a client in therapy with my dj schedule and well come downs but also you know jet lags and and touring and you know what have you was that i couldn't be in someone's house or or office for my therapy sessions every tuesday at 3 p.m or whatever or 11 a.m you know i often had to miss sessions which i was painful um because i was away or or too tired or whatever um so i had this idea to start a business where the therapy offered was online um it was more open to uh, providing unsocial hours, uh, unsociable hours for the clients. So let's say, let's say you're in New York, but you can still have your session and I can move it to 8am to fit in with your schedule, then I would do that, you know. So that was the, the initial concept. And then of course, lockdown came along and every single therapist in the world went online and sort of that aspect of, of the business became not very exclusive, but but nevertheless, um, you know, the idea was still to provide, you know, therapy, mentoring and, 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 and also meditation, which is what my partner's um, area of expertise for people in creative industries, just to help them with their with their spiritual growth and to help them with their with their presenting issues and personal development. And so we started off as it was myself, um, two other therapists and my partner, who's also my wife. Um, and now we have seven on the team and uh, the therapists um, and, and coaches have, you know, uh, areas of specialty, but they, they also work, you know, in a much broader context. And, you know, um, everyone's busy and the, the company is going pretty well. It's not easy. Um, we've looked at many different ways of, of of running it as a business, we looked at doing it as charity, as a charitable foundation, but the the amount of admin and and what that comes with that avenue was just too overwhelming for me. I mean, I'm still a DJ and still a music producer as as well as doing the therapy. So so yeah, we we're just growing organically and and we're trying to provide uh, our service to whoever needs it. And I think there is something so appealing about speaking to someone who who gets it. And obviously we know about that from 12-step recovery, uh, you know, having that kind of lived experience of, you know, uh, where you don't have to kind of explain. Very much so. And then, you know, depending on what someone's needs are or, or where where they want to go with, with the 
therapy should they choose to embark on it you know what one of our therapists specializes in working with 18 to 25 year olds another one specializes in relationship issues another one specializes in in trauma so i'm able to you know signpost people to the right person for their presenting issues within our framework as well 100 and i think you know that's one of my kind of biggest frustrations i guess or miss you know in the misconception when people sort of think about addiction i think they often see just someone who uses too much too many drugs or drinks too much booze and actually it's like that's maybe like the headline but there's this whole usually there's this whole kind of spectrum of other things you know that someone's going through whether it's addiction childhood trauma um you know maybe neurodivergence as well you know um maybe there's also an eating disorder maybe there's also you know OCD maybe you know there's going to be all these different things I think that's where therapy is really important because my experience uh in addiction recovery but uh, and, and my journey has been the 12-step program has saved my life and, and I've, I've, I've kept going back there no matter what. And, you know, the, I, you know, the tools that are there that I've learned and, you know, you know having a fellowship and, and, and group of like-minded people to be able to connect with and do service with has, has been invaluable. But the therapy parallel to that has also, you know, been invaluable and it's helped me make sense of my feelings, my emotions and, and what else is going on. So you know, I'm a real advocate, as was my therapist, of, 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 of you know, using both sets of tools, really. And actually, that kind of leads me on quite nicely to talk about creativity. You know, creativity has been really, really profound and really healing in my own recovery process. You know, I was not someone who was creative in my addiction. But yeah, kind of reclaiming that part of myself um, has been incredibly healing and powerful. As I know that, that the opposite is true for you. You were incredibly creative during your addiction. Um, was there any kind of fear about not being able to be creative without substances i was creative um but my addiction took it away bit by bit gradually and in a very covert way i didn't really know you know as time went on i started making more and more excuses for not not turning up to the studio i'm making more and more excuses eventually even not turning up to gigs and eventually, you know, before 2015, I stopped doing anything. I, you know, all, all I was doing was, was related to my, my substance abuse. And, and it, did, it literally took away everything from me at that time. But what got me back into kind of creativity again, again now really was, um, funnily enough, was uh, painting. You know, my mother was an artist and a sculptor. I'm not very good, but I I had a few goes when I was when I was in Thailand, art therapy or just whatever was going on there. I can't quite remember. Um, but when I came back to Ibiza and, and I had that time that I told you that I was kind of reflecting and trying to work out what I wanted to do next, I bought an easel and bought some canvases. And, you know, I I just used to lose myself in 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 painting and you know it's it's not the music but but bearing in mind what we've discussed today about euphoric recall and how people have struggled with that I, I was fresh out of rehab I wasn't sure where I wanted to go with it all I didn't turn my back on music at all but I also found another way to be creative and to let it out of me and you know 
whatever that might be for somebody, you know, is a really important part of living, of being in life, of, of flourishing and thriving. And, you know, if you can, if you can create without agenda, which is so tricky for so many people, if you can create just because, then you're really living, you know. Um, I think one of the things that is very daunting for people and can also, you know, feed their addiction is fear of failure, uh, competitiveness out there, um, needing the music to sound as good as the last thing they did or, or you know, wanting it to sound like the things that they're, they're hearing that other people are making or buying into the whole look at me on Instagram thing and, you know, thinking that that's what they, you know, they need to achieve that for, to, to, to be able to enjoy themselves. And yeah, uh, there's an element of that, all of those things that are relevant, but at the same time, you know, to just do something creative because you want to do something creative is, is, you know, it can be, can be incredibly healing. Would you say this is the best things have ever been for you? Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was pretty good when Love Story came out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny because I speak to Leo a lot at the moment and, you know, we're often reminiscing and nostalgia and, you know. Mm. Um, look, it, things are great. You know, I'm 50 years old. Uh, you know, I got married last year. Uh, I'm living in a nice area close to some friends now that I've, I've missed, um, close to my, my son again. You know, the therapy works... Um, busy and is developing I'm still learning all the time and, and and you know music's you know I'm really enjoying it again at the moment I'm, I'm kind of I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed with all these projects and, and taking on a bit too much but at the same time being sober you know seven and a half years soon almost seven and a half years now you know it feels good I'm definitely using some of those life experiences to 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 turn into something that other people can use to their to their benefit for their for their growth, personal growth, mm. spiritual growth, their, their development, and you know you you know about addiction. You, you know you can't kid a kidder, and and the thing is, you know even as a therapist working with addicts, you know sometimes I have to watch people and experience clients fall down and struggle you know experiencing people not turning up and knowing deep down why they haven't turned up and wondering how bad it got that week you know that 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 can be very difficult but you know the, the on, the on the plus side of it i'm always there for them every week and they know that you know when they do come that there's a space that we've created together where they can where they can share what's going on for them no i, I think you know if you're talking about <clears throat> Addiction in particular, you know, I mean, I think the reality is that sometimes, sometimes we need to discover um, the hard way, uh, what it's mm -hmm. like, and, and that sometimes we're just not ready, you know, and uh, it's about intention, you know, it's about desire, desire to stop, and it's about the intention to do something about it. And the one thing that worked for me was, was the 12 steps when I did it, when I did it properly, mm -hmm. you know. Um, all the other things worked for a little bit, uh, but not permanently. But that was my experience, and it's not everybody's. So I don't, you know, I, I do believe there's more than one way to skin a cat, but I can only, I can only share my own experiences.
Thank you so much, Matthew. Uh, I loved this conversation, as I always do. It's such an honour to sit down uh, with people and talk from the heart, really, and share these really, really important um, and sometimes difficult experiences. And I really loved hearing Matthew's story which is so incredible and just what's more incredible is kind of what he's doing now I think uh, in using that experience uh, and all of the difficulties he's been through to help others if you want to find out more about his therapy practice listen up therapy I will put all the links and details in the description of the podcast so there'll be links to him to his Instagram um, and even maybe to uh, one of the 20-year love story anniversary remixes that are uh, doing the rounds at the moment because they're just brilliant. And every time I hear that song, it just takes me takes me back. It takes me back to uh, a dance floor in the early noughties. Loved, loved speaking to Matthew today. Thank you so much. And thank you so much to you for listening Uh you know, if you've enjoyed the podcast, if you've resonated with something, then please know that there is help out there and there is hope. And if you want to support the podcast, you can leave a review and uh, you can also uh, rate the podcast and follow the podcast. And you can also support us via the Instagram just by sharing the posts and interacting with the posts. It all helps me to continue doing this. Uh, we have a real life event coming up, which I'm so excited about. In just a couple of weeks, I'm going to be taking over the Love In with a back to life party. I've invited friends of the podcast and incredible DJs, uh, Tashiki Ota, Gallagher, and Bex, and myself. Um, we're going to be tearing it up till four in the morning, and we would love you to join us. Tickets are available on Head First and there'll be plenty on the door. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another incredible guest with something important to share. Thank you for listening. See you in a couple of weeks. Take care.